So I have a huge question to ask, and uh, so if you haven't already, uh, find the seat belts on your chairs and strap in uh, for this, all right? So here's the question that I want you to think about this morning. What are the most important decisions that you've made so far in your life? Most important decisions you've made so far in your life. Now, I'm asking that knowing that we make a lot of decisions every day such as what time do I get up? What's the first thing that I do? Do I, do I eat? Do I exercise? Do I pray? What do I wear? Uh, if I eat, uh, what am I going to eat? Coffee or no coffee? Buy it or make it? Sit in the car or you know, eat in the car or you know, sit at home and eat? Speed limit or not? Um, you know, all of those are decisions that we make before we even get where we're going, and I was just kind of skimming the decisions that, that we make. I read according to multiple sources on the internet, so we know this has to be true, that uh, adults make uh, the decisions that we make that we're even remotely conscious of uh, that we're making equals about 35,000 a day. 35,000 decisions that each of us, some that we're very aware of and some that we're maybe not as aware of. In contrast to that, young children make about 3,000 uh, decisions every day. So lots of decisions. The question is, what's, what's the most, what are the most important decisions you've ever made? And even more to the point, what's the most important decision you'll ever make in your life? Of the 35,000 remotely conscious decisions, right? Some decisions we make, we are very aware of because they have huge impact, consequences. Uh, they give direction to our lives, such as where will I live? What will I do for a living and where will I work? Will I marry? And if I do, who will I marry? Will we have children? And if we do, how many children will we have? So listen, what, what's not merely the biggest, because those are all big decisions, not merely the biggest decisions, but what is the biggest decision you will or, uh, or that, that all of us have to make in our lives? I'm just going to give you a hint. There's only one. There's only one decision that stands, a decision you make, it stands above all others, and that's what we're going to talk about today. So if this is your first time, my name is Mike. I'm the lead pastor here at MCC, and we're really glad that you're here. Actually, as if you're a first-time guest, we have a gift for you if you haven't received it already. I do want to encourage you, the verses that Mandy just read are on the Bible app. If you have the YouVersion Bible app, if you go to the events tab, you'll find our notes for this morning there. Also, uh, on the handout that you received when you came in the door. And if you are watching online, uh, thank you for joining us there. One of the things that we know is that people check us out online before they come here, in more cases than not. And so if that's you, thank you for doing that. And I hope you'll join us here in the big room um, soon. So as a church, we have been studying Paul's letter to the Colossians. Uh, Paul started a lot of churches, but I want to make sure you know this isn't one of them. Not only did he not start this church, he's never met any of these people uh, that he's writing to. He is under house arrest, and his dear friend, faithful uh, Jesus follower, uh, Epaphras, has come to visit him. And Epaphras has told Paul of some teachers who are leading people away from Jesus. Their teaching is actually downgrading who Jesus is. Now, and if you've ever bought a new car, you already know this, but the moment you drive a brand new car off the lot, it does what? It depreciates in value. Just, I mean, it just takes a huge drop. As I tell you that just as a way to point. I mean, that's what's happening with Jesus. The longer these teachers are able to teach false things about Jesus... 
his rightful place as supreme Lord of the universe is depreciating by the second in this church. And their teaching can be summed up as this, Jesus plus. So Jesus plus keeping the rules will keep you in God's good graces. And maybe, listen, I actually was taught that a little bit when I was growing up, or I at least believed it when I was growing up. Maybe you've been taught, maybe that's what you believe too. You, you trust in Jesus and you keep these rules and God won't be mad at you. And that's kind of what they were learning as well. Jesus plus a little philosophy will set you on the right path. Jesus plus angel worship will enlighten your thinking. Jesus plus cutting or treating your body in a harmful or evil way will show God that you really mean business when it comes to following him. So here's the most important question that you will ever answer, because it's what they were dealing with. Who is Jesus going to be in my life? Who, who, who is he to me? So the question is, what do you believe about the identity of Jesus? I mean, who is he? How would you answer uh, these basic questions? Or how would the how would the world answer them? Your friends, how would your friends answer them? You know, I, our, this fall, our student ministry is challenging and equipping our students to read their Bible every day. They recently wrapped up a six-week Bible reading plan that they started on August 5th. The plan had them read through the books of Mark and Philippians uh, together. And on September 9th this month, they started uh, what's called the Lunch Table Challenge. And this activity is, de is designed to help our students spend time with other high school students in Christ-like community, but not just here in our building, not just here on our campus or in our meetings, but to take that actually onto their school campuses. So for four weeks, our students are being encouraged and equipped to take on the challenge of leading strategic conversations with their friends during their school lunch period. These conversations are strategically designed to lead to significant spiritual conversations. And one of the questions that it will lead to, so there's all kinds of questions, but one week it'll lead to this, who is God to you? And if you think that's an easy conversation to have as a student, listen, I'm just so proud of our high school students who are going to step up and accept this challenge. So here's, who was Jesus? Mythological character or historical figure? Created being or creator himself? Born of human parents, born of a virgin? A great teacher of truth or the author of truth? One of many ways to God or the only way to God? A religious leader or the ultimate authority? A representative of God or is Jesus God himself? So Paul wrote to the church in Colossae to address some false teaching beginning to infiltrate the church. Last week, Adam reminded us as he began this series, uh, what Paul, he was reminding us of what Paul had reminded the church then, that the gospel works in your life. It, for some of us, it's already been working. It will continue to work if we'll just trust it and live it out. In our verses this morning, Paul offers a list of Jesus's qualifications, kind of a, a resume of his credentials, which addresses this idea of lordship. Now, this becomes the most important question that you're ever going to answer because the foundational issue is this. Who is Lord in your life? Who makes the ultimate decisions in my life? Who makes the ultimate decisions in your life? Who calls the shots in my life and in your life? Who is in charge of my life? Who's in charge of your life? Which, listen, I, I know, I know, I know that sounds like something a preacher is going to say. It's a, the way he's going to word it. But the answer to that question, please understand, 
The answer to that question will guide every other decision, big and little, that you make in life. And this, listen, it will guide, it will determine the strength of our church in this community, how we answer. This question is so important. It's the question Jesus asked his followers. Uh, they've taken this trip. They're in Caesarea Philippi. And it says in Matthew 6, so this is where the story takes place. When they come to the region of Caesarea Philippi, Jesus turns to the 12, the 12 apostles who are traveling with him and asks them, who do people say that the Son of Man uh, is. And they replied, so they're all talking to him and saying, well, you know, some people say that you're John the Baptist, back from the dead. Others people say that you're Elijah and still others, Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. And here's what's interesting. When this question, when our students ask their friends that question, when you ask other people that question, you're going to get all kinds of answers about who Jesus is because all kinds of people have all kinds of opinions about who Jesus is. But the thing that's important is what Jesus asks next. It isn't about what other people think. What about you? Who do you say? I, I, it's important what your friends say, but what's most important is what you say. Who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter said, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Listen, if, and that's a big if, and I'm not going to make that assumption this morning about your life, but if Jesus is both Lord and Savior in your life, your decisions and the beliefs you base them on are going to be challenged in our culture. And so you have to know, you have to have this solid understanding of what you believe. What is it you believe about Jesus? It's the most important, listen, it's one of the most important things you have to determine, you have to discover that you have to be able to answer. And let's make sure each of us have the scriptural understanding of exactly who God is and exactly what he might look like. And I might say, uh, because I've never seen him. And here's why. And I don't know if you picked up on it when Mandy read it, but Paul says that God is invisible. And I want to be real honest with you. That's not always real helpful to me. I don't know, especially when I was beginning out as a follower. Man, I just think it would have been so much easier if he'd just like shown up, you know, and I could have seen who he was. But by invisible, Paul means that God is entirely different from anything physical. And it's not the only time he talks about this. In case you think they're speaking poetically, look at else, look else at what Paul wrote. He writes to Timothy, his spiritual son, now to the king, talking about God, now to the king, eternal, immortal, what? invisible, the only God be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. I wanted to make sure you knew that. I want to make sure you remembered that, or if you'd never heard it, that you knew that that was true because it ties into what Paul says first about who Jesus is. So Colossians 1.15 tells us that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. So if you're taking notes, if you have your handout, if you're filling in the blanks, Jesus is the image of God. The word image is from the Greek word icon, where we get our English word icon. <laughs> icon means likeness or image or portrait. It's the closest word that the ancient Greeks would have had to a photograph because at that time, a legal document included a description of the appearance and distinguishing features of the persons involved to help with positive identification in case later on that document were ever disputed. The description written of the people was called an icon or an image. Paul is saying that Jesus is the icon, the image 
the physical manifestation of the invisible God. Because the Bible tells us that no one has ever seen God. But if, but through Jesus, we have a picture of what God is like. Now, Jesus said some pretty outrageous things about himself. But the one that I think is most outrageous is he says in the midst of this conversation again with the 12. So he's having this intimate conversation with the 12. It's, it's just before he dies. And in the middle of this conversation, Philip says this to him, Lord, show us the father. And listen, that will be enough for us. And Jesus said to him, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen God because Jesus is the visible image of God. As a matter of fact, in Hebrews, toward the old end of the New Testament, in Hebrews chapter one, we read this, the son, that is Jesus, talking about Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory. He's the exact representation of his being. Listen, you want to learn about God's compassion? Look at Jesus. You want to learn about God's mercy? Look at Jesus. You want to hear about his power and his authority? You find that out by observing the life of Jesus as recorded in the New Testament. He models for us the attributes of God, which by the way, that word model can also represent an idea or an example that we want to follow, right? He's a model citizen. She's a model student. So when we look at Jesus, we say, uh, Jesus offers us a picture of God so we'll understand not just what God is like, but also so that we can see what it means to live godly lives. He's the model we want to emulate. His life is what we want our life to look like. That's the first thing he tells us. Here's the second thing he tells us. Paul writes that Jesus is the biggest deal. Very important that you write this word, the biggest deal. He's not just a big deal. He's the biggest deal. It's verse 15. The son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Now, some people, by the way, have taken that verse to mean that God created Jesus first before he created anything else, but that Jesus is only a created being. He is the first one born, but he's not eternal. God made him. However, the word firstborn in the Bible means of utmost importance. And here's how we know this. When you're reading about the Old Testament story of Abraham and Isaac, we find out that Isaac was considered the firstborn son of, of Abraham because he was the child of the promise. But, a, but Isaac was not Abraham's firstborn son, biologically. Abraham had a son that was 14 years older, whose name was Ishmael. And yet Isaac was the firstborn son of Abraham. When you read about King Solomon, he was called the firstborn son of David, but he wasn't David's, King David's firstborn son. As a matter of fact, if I counted him right, he was the 10th born son. He was the 10th son of King David, but he was the most important because he was the one that God had chosen to become king. Jesus is firstborn over all creation because he has priority, because he is supreme, because he's the biggest deal. He's the stuff. That's, I mean, that's who Jesus is. William Barclay summarizes verse, he said, the highest honor which creation holds belongs to him. That's what that verse means. He is the most important. Here's the next thing. I want to make sure not only is Jesus not created, we're going we're gonna to take it a step further. He's the creator. He's not something that's been made. He's the maker 
of things. Verse 16, for in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Now, if you go all the way back to the very beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter one, we're just 26 verses into the very beginning of the Bible and the story that it tells. Then God said, So creation is happening. Let us make, this is the sixth day, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. Who is he talking to? Who, why is God sound, it sounds like there's somebody else there, right? God the Father is speaking to God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. Their collaborative effort Through that, the world was made. Colossians says that everything that was created was created through him and for him. And this may come as a big shock to you, but what that means is that the universe was not created primarily for you and for me. It is created for Jesus. This is not our world. This is his world. We are to serve him and not vice versa, which should take a load off your shoulders because he's in charge. He's the creator of all things. That's why Jesus was able to demonstrate power over creation because when he spoke, things happened. I don't know about you, but when I speak in nature, nothing happens, right? But when Jesus spoke, right, because he's Lord of all creation, it obeys his command. That's why when he decided he wanted to walk on water, it held him up because he created it. That's why when he's in a boat with his followers and this huge storm breaks out and it scares them to death and they think they're all going to die, Jesus stands up and says, be still. And it, it is because he designed the weather. It's why he's able to heal diseases and raise the dead because he created us. And I just want to say this as an aside, because he created you, he knows you. As a matter of fact, the Bible tells us he knew us in our mother's womb, before we were ever formed in our mother's womb, he knew us. He made you. And I want you to hear this. Please hear this. He not only made you and knows you, he loves you. Verse 17 says, not only did he create everything, he is before all things. Before anything was created, Jesus already existed. He has no beginning and he has no end. And I've got to tell you, my finite brain cannot understand that. Everything that I know of has a beginning and or an end. I'm assuming that is true of you as well. I do not comprehend how God the Father, God the Son, and the God the Holy Spirit could be eternal without beginning or end. It just My head's not big enough for that. But I will tell you this, even though I can't kind of comprehend it, I believe it. And I trust that one day I'll understand it because one day I'll be there and it will begin to make sense. Notice what else it says in verse 17. Not only is Jesus before all things, in, th- in him all things hold together. So write this in your blank, if you would. Jesus is the glue, all right? He's the glue, which I don't know, that might sound a little disrespectful to describe Jesus as glue. So if you're uncomfortable with writing glue, don't write that in there. If it makes you feel any better, write the word mucilage, Right? Thank you, thesaurus, right? Glue or mucilage, whatever you want to use. The point is Jesus holds everything together. Literally, he keeps the world from falling apart. What is it that enables the earth to continue to rotate around the sun? In him, 
All things are held together. What keeps the solar system from careening into, off into outer space? In him, all things hold together. What holds together the rapidly spinning uh, electric particles in a molecule? In him, all things hold together. What guarantees that gravity is going to hold us to the ground each day? In him, all things hold together. From the very beginning, he set certain laws into motion by which all things hold together. But even more, Jesus holds our families together. If you put Jesus in the middle of your family and everybody is pointed at him, your family is not going to fall apart. If everyone's looking at Jesus, you ever wonder what keeps a church together? I mean, think about all the different backgrounds, the different interests that we have, our different opinions and personalities. But we all have unity when Jesus is our purpose for coming together. That's what keeps a church together when Jesus becomes our purpose for coming together. Not only does he hold us together, but I want to make sure you get this too. He's the authority in the church. If you want to know who's calling the shots, you want to know who's the boss, it's Jesus. He's not an authority. He's the authority. Verse 18, and he is the head of the body, the church. Now I want you to think about what the head does for your body, what your head does for your body. Tells the body what to do and where to go. It thinks, it reasons, it communicates. It holds the tools for four of the five senses, sight, smell, hearing, and taste, right? Listen, so many illnesses are psychologically impacted that the head is often responsible for the health of the body. If the head and the body aren't working together, you are going to have problems. In the last years of her life, my mom struggled with Parkinson's disease. And part of what it did was it confused her at times. Not all the time. Sometimes she was lucid and other times we weren't real sure where she was. Uh, one day I received a call from my mom. That night we were supposed to go to a family dinner at where at the, at the residence where they lived. Uh, and so we were going to the family was heading that direction that night, but uh, I got a call, went to my voicemail and I just so you know, I still have this voicemail on my phone. And she says, Mike, we're not going to make it to family, uh, family dinner tonight, unless someone comes and picks us up. So I thought, well, that's really weird. Cause you're where it's at. I don't know why you want to. So I called her back to get clarification. I said, mom, where are you? She said, we're in the cemetery. I said, why are you in the cemetery? She goes, I don't know. Well, where's dad? He's right here beside me. Well, what's he doing? Sitting in his chair watching TV. In the cemetery, mom? <laughs> dad's sitting in his chair watching TV in the cemetery? I said, I'll be over in a few minutes. Listen, Jesus is the head of the, his body, the church. And he's given us instructions through his word about how we're to operate as the church and as his followers. And if we don't listen... Please, please, please know this. Going to church doesn't answer this for you. If you listen to him on a day-to-day -day basis, if you don't, let me say it that way, if you don't listen to him, there will be confusion in your life. You will not know for certain what you ought to do next. We need to listen to him because, I want to make sure you get this, Jesus is God. In case there was any confusion, verse 19 says, God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him. All of the fullness of God resided inside Jesus. He wasn't merely a replica or a copy. The divine nature of God 
resided inside of him, literally God in the flesh, which is why at Christmas time we get these Christmas cards that are quoting Matthew. Uh, and this is, this is one of the, my favorite verses to see on Christmas cards, as a matter of fact. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they'll call him Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. Literally. Literally. God with us us. And here's why this is so important, because all of these other things we've talked about just lead to this last one. He's the reconciler. He is, he's it. If there's reconciliation to be had, he's the one to do it. There is no one else. No one else can do the reconciling. He's it. Now, let me tell you what we need reconciled, uh, because Paul writes about this in verses 19 to 22. For God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood, Jesus' blood, shed on the cross. Because once you were alienated from God and we were enemies in our own minds because of our evil behavior. But now Jesus has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. I just want to say this as clearly as I can. Jesus has done for us what could not be done any other way. There was no other way for this to be accomplished. He was able to restore our severed relationship with God. You need to understand, our sins didn't merely offend God. We, we, weren't, we weren't simply separated from him temporarily. Sin doesn't damage our relationship with God. It shatters our relationship with God. <laughs> It, it mars it. Listen, it, we, were, we were God's, we were enemies. We stood opposed to him because of decisions we've made and actions that we've taken, thoughts that we've had. We stood opposed to God. We were his enemies. And he reconciled us. And if you have, if you're wondering what in the world is that about, this story goes all the way back to the beginning. I've mentioned Genesis already. It goes all the way back to the beginning because when God created us, if you look in the book of Genesis, you'll see he made us for a relationship with him. And that's the way it was. When you look at the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve had this relationship with God. But then something happened. Sin came into the world. And separated us from God. And if you read the, new, or read the first book of the Bible, in the book of Genesis, what you find out is there was this tree they weren't supposed to eat from. And Adam and Eve ate from it. And sin entered the world and separated them from God. And still today we find ourselves, because of sin, separated from God. But it's not Adam and Eve's sin that separates me from God. It's not Adam and Eve's sin that separates you from God. Do you know whose sin it is that separates me from God? my sin. My sin separates me from God, makes me his enemy. It's your sin that separated you from him and made you his enemy. And we kind of know that. And so we try to do these things. We try to make up for this bad, the bad decisions we've made. We try to be good and try to not do bad things so that we can be good enough. And we try, you know, we go to church and read our Bible and we hope that that and singing some songs will make it okay with God. But we keep coming up short because those things, while they are good in and of themselves, are not what connects us back to God. What we do falls short, and we know we've got to get this fixed because if this separation from God continues into eternity beyond our life, it's actually, it's a place. It's called hell. We, 
Hell is the eternal separation from God. As a matter of fact, as bad as things are here on earth in places, listen, God is still here. Imagine what it is like for his presence to be totally absent. That's what hell is. And so we know we can't have this go on forever. The problem is we can't do anything about it. The good news of our faith is that 2,000 years ago, God did. It's what Paul was just writing about. God sent his son Jesus to die on the cross to reconcile us back to him. We were his enemies. God sent his son so that we could be friends. And we have to respond to that. And the Bible says there are three ways to respond. The first one is you have to believe. And it's what we're talking about today. What do you believe about who Jesus is? Because in John 3, 16, we find out Jesus said that God loves us so much that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. If you, if you, these things about Jesus, if that's what you believe. The second thing the Bible tells us is that we need to repent. And repent means we need to change the way we think because we, never, we didn't think that way before. But now that we understand who Jesus is, it changes the way we think. And we ask God for forgiveness and we own it. God, it's not your fault I sinned. It was my choice. It was my decision to do that. Acts 3 says, if we will repent and turn to God, that our sins will be wiped out, not merely covered over. They will be obliterated. Then the Bible says there's a third thing that we need to do, and that is to be baptized. Peter says this in Acts chapter 3, repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, in a moment, we're going to sing a song. Lord, I need you. And as you sing, I hope my prayer has been that those words will help you determine what your next step is in your faith when it comes to who Jesus is going to be in your life and how you live that truth out in your life. Because if you've come here today and you believe this about Jesus, if if what we're talking about, you're going, yeah, I believe all of that stuff. If you believe all of that and you've never committed your life to him, and the Bible says we do that through our baptism, if you've never done that, I want to invite you to do that today. So today, just so you know, as we sing this song, in just a moment, when we sing this song, I'm going to be standing right there. And if that's a decision that you want to make today, I will be right there when we're singing. Please come see me. Or if you don't want to see me, if you don't want to come up during the singing, after the service, I'm going to stand right there. I'll be right there if you want to talk to me about that decision because we would love, listen, that important, that decision is so important. We would love to help you make that. But if you've come and you're already a follower of Jesus, here's your next step. So this is for everyone else. If you're already a follower of Jesus, and we're going to ask you to do this every week from now on in this series, okay? Because this is the number one catalyst to help everyone, regardless of how long you've been following Jesus. This helps you grow to the next level in your faith. It's on your handout, because I didn't want you to have to write this down. I want you to have it. Take it home with you. You ready? Every day this week, read Colossians 1, 15 to 23. It's just nine verses. Read that every day four times. Every day you're going to read nine verses, so a total of 36 verses, nine times, uh, or nine verses, four times. The first time when you read it, just familiarize yourself, kind of get a grasp of what God is saying to you there. The second time you read it, notice what pops at you. There's going to be a word or a phrase or a sentence or an idea that's just going to make this impression on you. Notice what that is. The third time you read it, 
pray those words. Interact with God as you read it. And the fourth one, ask God how he wants you to live based on those verses. Is there something that he wants you to start doing, stop doing, or continue doing because of what his word says? You're going to read those this week, nine verses, four times every day. And you're going to ask yourself those questions. What do you want me to start doing? What do you want me to stop doing? What do you want me to continue doing? Does that make sense? Do that this week every day and watch what God does in your life. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. You make the decision whether you're going to do it or not. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for who Jesus is. Thank you that you would allow him to pay this price that we have that, <laughs> frankly, God, we couldn't, we couldn't pay. We don't have what it takes to pay that price. We were lost and hopeless and helpless. We had allowed ourselves to become your enemies. Not, not distant cousins, not, not, not friends that aren't speaking anymore. God, we were your enemies. We deserved hell. And so you sent your son to save us, to reconcile us back to you. God, thanks for that. And for everyone who has already made that commitment to Jesus being Lord, not just Savior, but Lord of their life, the one who calls the shots, most important decision we'll make, God. I pray as they read these verses and they ask those questions and they pray these verses to you, God, that you would continue to draw them closer and help grow them up in their faith and make them stronger so that when they are questioned about who Jesus is in their life, we'll all be able to answer that well. And God, for those of us who are here this morning who have never made that commitment, we've never given ourselves to you. God, I pray that they'll take that step today. They will make the decision and follow through today. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you for loving us. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.